welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Well, we are down to our third choice presenter with Gavin Casey and Ryan Bailey both away. I'm Murray Kinsella and I'll do my best to step up to the job. Joining me is Andy Dunn. Andy, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Murray. Good to see you back from Cardiff. There was a funny tweet on a rugby account last night that made it look like we had taken four days to get back <laughs> from Cardiff. But we are here. It felt a bit like a four-day trip, yeah. Yeah, it did. It did. Not the most enjoyable weekend over there. Your reaction on off the wall immediately after the game was really strong. I think most of you probably heard that. I guess with the removal of a few days, how do you look on, on that Ireland performance? Um, I, you know, when when uh, there's, there's been certainly, I, I was surprised I had people texts or um, send me messages about what I said and, and obviously there was I, I, I think I meant what I said or fully kind of stand by it um, but I also said in that that piece I think it's it's something that can be fixed I, I don't think we need to there's an element of you know people running out of a burning building arms in the air screaming yeah. and shouting all of a sudden um, it's still the same team that was beat the All Blacks won in Australia, won a Grand Slam. And we did it in a way that was, um, I suppose, be- has become predictable. And that's that's my read on it. I think everybody went away, certainly the Six Nations coaches, and, and that's what happens in professional sport now. And everyone is going to look at the style and the uh, execution of the best sides and work out ways to negate it. And... I think that's absolutely been done. And I think it's negated our, our way of playing. My real concern is the re- the reaction now by, by Joe and his coaching team, by the players. My concern is if they, are they going to be very, very kind of militant about maintaining that style of play and maintaining the idea that if they execute it better, it will remain successful. I don't believe it will. I just think it's too, uh, as I, my my kind of lines I'm harping on about is that the, there's a lack of economy in it. I think if you keep asking your forwards to, to run into brick walls, it's fine when it works. When it ceases to work, it starts to sap morale. I mean, my job as a 10... And I only worked this out when, by the time my, my by the time my head had worked this out at the time, my legs are gone. So, I, I you know, it was, it was ironic. So I uh, finally my brain came into to the correct form of thinking when I was like 28, 29, 30. My job was to marshal the forward pack around the field in a way that kept them going forward, and <clears throat> the forward pack carried 155 times, I think, between mm. eight of them in 80 odd minutes and the aggregate carry was 144 meters so there is a point there's a tipping point in that type of play where a guy in the front five who's also been asked to lift in the line out he's been asked to scrummage under great scrutiny uh, huge physical demand on that who's asked to stand up and run around the corner and run into a brick wall repeatedly who's asked to win rooks defend rocks, be a contributor in, in the defensive line in all kinds of positions across the field. There's only so much people can do. They can do that for a big game every once in a while and they've had a bit of time off. But to do it every single week, it's just not realistic, regardless of how how primed you are as an athlete. And I think there's a there's a there's a there's a lack of joy in playing that way. 
and and not the guys are going to go on record and say that as players. Mm. Their job is to win games and take money and be a big professional and take everything seriously and walk around with a scowl on your face. But people respond to to being allowed freedom and free and it doesn't mean you play like the Harlem Globetrotters. But I but I I'm my biggest concern, I I think there are multiple easy fixes or relatively easy fixes. My concern is that Joe and the nature of how he coaches, um is that he's very controlling. He wants to control every facet of play. And to retreat from that may feel like he's either, he's con- he's conceding that, you know, his tactics to date now have been, have been yeah. found out. They weren't found out for 18 months, but the best, the better teams, England and Wales, completely, um, I suppose, disarmed us. Yeah, and and I think we just need to look at it and tweak that a bit. So you're yeah. I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bat water. There's so <laughs> many good things as well. Yeah, evolve or die is the kind of a little message. Yeah. Give us an easy fix though. What do you like? What are you thinking? <clears throat> an easy fix would be, um, and we did it in the first couple of minutes of the French game. Uh, we had a scrum that was deep, and I thought we were either going to box kick or set it up in midfield and ask Murray to box kick or set it up in the 15 and ask Murray to box kick. But we ran it, two wide passes. The French wingers had to come up and we kicked it over their heads. Mm. That's about as easy as you get because you kicked into lots of green field space. We had a brilliant kick chase. We were out of our territory. Um, But it took two wide passes in an area that's a bit risky. to do but we did it if we did that more often that's uh, that's an easy fix I think if you look at Farrell and you look at Finn Russell and to an even slighter extent you look at uh, even Carty when he came on the field to embrace the attacking kick either a grubber or a chip kick you surrender possession so there's a risk in that but you also halt the speed of onset of the defensive line um, I, I think we've got m- many set piece plays that give us scope to be creative mm-hmm. and Joe has a huge library of those and sort of players like those but I think at the moment they spend so much time rehearsing those and then rehearsing multiple rocking rugby it's all gone a bit stale but I you know breaking it up um, offloads encouraging people to offload and I don't buy into the fact that the you know that's something you need to do for years and years these, these guys have played under multiple coaches in different environments in different countries they're skillful enough to with a couple of weeks work on that in a focused way mm. um, offload more it's riskier but it directly reduces the amount of rooks which then allows uh, you know has a knock on effect we're in a bit of a vicious cycle reduced offloads multiple rooks running into brick walls um, if you use the space around the field spread out the defences add in variation and add in offloads they are relatively easy fixes for both mm. Joe, his coaching team, and the players to adapt. And that alone, I think, would be a huge change. Yeah. And I think he probably would feel that he has the scope for that variety. And Ireland have probably shown that at times. Like you've seen them kick well, as yeah. you say there. Um, in terms of that passing ability, that's been a probably disappointment in this campaign. More handling errors than they've ever had, really, yeah. under Joe, Joe Schmidt. Um, and also just not, not backing themselves to do that because there's been that blip of confidence that, mm. that that lack of fluency in their attacking flow that that just hasn't been there one thing i want to ask you about was how they react to adversity and um, listen no team is good at coming back from being behind 
Uh, it is a massive advantage in the game if you can get an early lead. But we have seen under Joe Schmidt that Ireland, once they get behind, really struggle. Or when they're in adversity, which they will feel last weekend came from the referee. They were very frustrated with a lot of his yeah. decision making. Go back through the game, you could justify some of Ireland's frustration. However, along with that frustration, there was also errors in, in nearly all those same passages of play. So even something like... I know they're frustrated with uh, Justin Tipperick getting that turnover at the five meter mall. Mm. But initially, there there's a, there's a bit of poor play from Ireland. Keen Healy lifts Shane Ryan, and he doesn't close off that kind of seam at the front of the mall. Adam Beard gets through, he disrupts it. Suddenly, they're kind of panicking, um, and then Justin Tipperick swoops in. So they were frustrated with that decision. Best actually asked Angus Gardner, you know, what was the call there? Angus Gardner couldn't really explain it to him. But I wanted to ask you about that reaction because that was down to their errors a lot of the time as well. Um, is there something that Joe Schmidt can do to, to tweak that in, in terms of psychology, mentality, how they actually respond to, to adversity? Um, I, I would, based on my own experience, when, when you are losing and you're not apparently clawing your way back or the scoreline seems to be stretching away from you, what it looks to me like is that we will continue to play the same way and try to execute it better. And that seems to be my, well, that is my biggest concern. If, if the scoreline's going away from you and top-class international players are doing apparently awful things like knocking on, you know, unforced errors, Johnny kicking it straight into touch, Murray having a bad day, a bad tournament, you, you know, both Murray and Sexton really playing well under what they're capable of. They're indicative of something else to me. That's that's just not okay. Look, guys have switched switched off, or the concentration levels are low. That to me is is a mix of frustration, panic, um, perhaps a, perhaps a lack of of independence in implementing what they want or what they can what they can see as quality players on the field down at pitch level. They are probably caught between. I need to implement what Joe wants, and and it's just it's well documented. Joe is is absolutely um, dictatorial about how he wants his team to play. Mm. So you get you get caught between two stools. You're like, if I don't implement what he wants, and if I if I go against it, you know, and it doesn't work. That's a tricky place to be. And when it goes, when you see two international players kind of run into each other, collide with each other or drop a ball and you're like, that wouldn't happen at under 10s. What's going wrong? And, and again, you come back to this really heightened emotional reaction to Saturday. It's not all that bad. It's, but I just think it's a case where um, if, if you were talking about a, a, a big corporate or a well-run business and there's a CEO and he's got executive level leadership and management throughout when things go wrong you know there's going to be a meeting where people sit down and say what what do you think do you think is there something we can do differently and i would i don't know if that's going to happen but i'd love if somewhere in the next two months omahani murray sexton joe farrell sat down and said you know are you guys tired of playing like ask the front five are they tired of 155 carries and 144 meters mm. you know they, 
I'd say they are, to be honest. And if you are, if the scoreline's going away from you and you're saying, how, how do Schmidt teams react when they're behind? They react by saying, I must obey what I've been told and it's not working. And then that's why they can't claw it back. Because when you, you claw it back by doing something instinctive, something risky, get back into the game, fluke your way back into the game, whatever it is, you know, disrupt the game. Look what Gatlin's team did when they were behind to England at half time. They didn't rigidly abide by, you know, everything that they're coached. They actually went out and ruffled a few feathers, old school. They started throwing a few shoulders in. They completely destabilised England emotionally and got themselves back into the game. Mm. By, you know, by being, that was nothing to do with, with structure and technical play. That was the psychology of what they did in the first 15 minutes. You, I, my concern is they, they will rigidly abide by what what Joe's diktat is. And sometimes, well, not all the time, actually, when we're behind, that doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, and it was, I guess the concerning thing was the way it, it continued to unravel. And there was never yeah. a calmness, even you think in the second half of Johnny Sexton, that third restart where he kicks it along the ground, essentially. And actually, there's a great shot of Alan Wynne-Jones. He's kind of got his concentration face on, ready to receive. Then the ball bobbles along the ground and he kind of squints, as in, was that just Johnny Sexton doing yeah. that? We've had loads of questions about Sexton and Murray, of course. That's what people are interested in. One here from Aidan Carson. He's on Twitter. He says, when does a world-class player need protecting from himself? At what point does blind faith become a hazard in the coaching world? Were you surprised, I guess, in that sense that Joe didn't make changes with his bench even. Um, no, I I think when it's gone that that wrong, uh, it would have been a huge, the, the psychology, how it looked, taking the two guys off, at, maybe at their lowest ebb. You know, he I think he was, he was concerned about that and said, look, maybe they can turn it around. And I, I, I totally understand it. I think... Um, you know, the question, when does a top-class player need to be protected from himself? I, I think the top-class players in the Irish team need to be given more managerial licence, more creative licence. They need to be empowered to a far greater degree. And once that happens, everything will fall back into place. You you cannot control every facet of play on the field as long as you try to do that with good people. At some point... You know, you if you, I remember uh, in my early twenties, I had a, a very kind of Zen mentor who who gave me the phrase: if you if there's a water fountain and you just cover over one end of it with a thumb, at some point it's going to spurt out in a different direction from a different outlet. And I think if you just let the water flow and you let the top guys who have who have carved their way to the top through immense difficulty, challenges, wins and losses, they have a capacity to read situations on the field like no other. But I'm not sure they're being given that capacity. And if, if they were allowed some breathing space and the intensity levels dropped um, and became a little bit more fun, dare I say it, um, I think everything would, would normalise. Yeah. There's an interesting one from Tom Joyce on Twitter. He says... Um, does the RFU player welfare policy need to be looked at? Which is kind of mad because no. only months ago we were <laughs> lauding it. There's no, like There's people are no, talking about players not looking fresh. Or, yeah, I don't look, quite buy that one, but yeah. what do you think? Well, no, I, I think they they don't look fresh mentally because I think they're worn down by by the... the Mental more than physical. Yeah, I, I just think that having to, to play that way 
relentlessly has just has a shelf life and it's it's just it's been disarmed by by good opposition analysis and it it can make someone very very look very very toothless and yeah but i these are these are not guys who are physically overworked forget it like yeah. in terms of english rugby french rugby you know no chance they were arguably the best minded international squad in the world yeah and they'll be good good which again is is also instructive if we're we- that well minded physically and we look that flat um and listless mm. in a, in what is a huge game or two huge games, really, the English-Welsh game, it has to be mental. It's yeah. definitely not physical. Yeah, like you mentioned earlier on, you would worry that Joe will just think, oh, we get these things right and it will improve. I think that will actually be the case. I think they'll look at the set piece, say, think of that move where they were in a midfield scrum. Yeah. Everyone's kind of talked about it. Bundyaki gets shut down by Josh Navidi. Like, that scrum was an utter mess for our Yeah. Game. And generally, their scrum is a really good platform. Yeah. Um, and because the scrum was a mess, it twists up and puts Josh Navidi in position to make a really good read, in fairness mm. to him. But his side of the scrum has wheeled up. He's able to shut Bondiaki down. Ringrose looping around from in behind the scrum doesn't make any difference in that instance. And, and it looks like a, a really major fail for the backline or the attacking idea, whereas Schmidt will probably go, my scrum needs to be better there. And then yes. it ends up two phases later with Sexton kicking out on the full under intense pressure from the defence. Joe Schmidt will link that back to yeah. get that set piece right and everything will flow. Yeah, yeah, that's my biggest concern. That's your worry. Yeah, that's my big worry. Yeah. Because what if you don't get every scrum the way you want it? Or what if the players can't execute it the way you want it? Mm. You know, his philosophy is control the controls and he feels that... No, his philosophy is control everything. But everything's not controllable to him, I guess. But rugby's not controllable in every yeah. facet of the game. So when you reflect on it in a room on a Monday, it's very easy to look at it and say, yeah, we didn't get it, you know, the tight head struggle in that particular one. There's a story going on behind that always. And... and Everyone else in the world is, we had a big target on our back coming into this. Everyone is spending a lot of time looking at how we play and and working out ways to disrupt what is, what's the best way to disrupt us? Disrupt, try and disrupt us at source. Disrupt us in the line out, disrupt us at scrum, slow down our ball. And what ends up is you. De- what you've got to do, doubtless as a defence, is you've got to defend you know, 140, 130 to 140 attacking rooks from Ireland. Um, but if you're prepared to do that, you'll beat us. Yeah, I think most teams struggle, I guess, when you most teams down those things. Yeah, yeah. It's not just Ireland, it's not just... In, in Joe's mind, I'm just trying to imagine in his shoes, yeah. he'll feel we can get those things right. It's he, will, he will, and rightfully so, because we, he, he, we got success that way. Yeah. So why, you know, it's very hard to, to say what well, I'm going to completely change and... I would hope he's not sitting listening to me and thinking, you know, okay, we'll have to do this, that and the other and change. But my overarching view, and it's been relatively consistent for 18 months, is that at some point, if you out, if you out, we, we do have a far more labour intensive game than any other top level international team. And at some point, yeah, there's a shelf life to being able to perform that regularly and I know the players get breaks away from Ireland when they go back into Ireland camp I'm sure the training's intense the meetings are intense the demands are intense and you know to to just to say okay let's go back to the drawing board and do the same thing better to me is is a real worry going into a, a mm. tournament 
that's going to put massive demands on our resources. Huge, huge demands. We're playing a Scottish side that scored 38 points in twi- in a half in Twickenham. So they can cut loose. Impressive. We're playing the host nation. We're playing a massive Russian and Samoan team. So in terms of physical demands and proximity of fixtures and all of that, somewhere in there, some economy needs to be introduced into our game. Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting because selection and, and player depth and squad is going to be really important. We've had a question about Tyburn from Roberto Van Flip on Instagram. He says, where does Tyburn now fit into this team and squad? Because he was a big talking point before the game. How did you feel it went for him? Do you think he's further his cause? And I guess in a general sense, has that use of 36 players actually been positive? Have we seen guys put their hands up? Yeah, well, I think it is a general sense getting 36 players exposure to Six Nations is only a good thing. It's a brilliant thing. Yeah. And it's highly commendable. And I think um, Joe, so chastened by that experience in the last World Cup, was very transparent. He was on record and uh, on the record. And, uh, you know, we didn't have the depth to cover the, the five key players. That's definitely been addressed. Um, and hugely commendable in a in a four three to four year period where We've also won a Grand Slam, yeah. you know, by and introducing new players to the to the, the systems he uses, to the way he coaches. Um, so that's a big plus. Um, from Tigburn, um, I, I think we've we've an incredible strength and depth now in the second row. And uh, if Joe looks at it from a point of view that. The set piece is, is massively important and I think it is for the way he wants to play, it's obvious. Then Devin Toner is going to be a starting second row mm-hmm. and James Ryan. Who was brilliant in the Six Nations, to be fair. Yeah, and I uh, and deservedly so. I, I think they're 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 both a shoe in, I think, should they be fit. Um and then behind that to have the likes of Ian Henderson and Byrne, um yeah, it's it's incredible strength and depth. And Byrne, everybody knows he's going to try and get in and spoil the ball. And certainly the Welsh did, and they still couldn't stop him. You know, that incredible yeah, uh, steal, one-handed, his body contorted, getting smashed from all angles in the back of the neck, the head and the ribs. He still comes up and manages to hold on to it, sing one hand, place it safely on our side. It's pretty heroic stuff. Um, I think he's... Uh, it, it could be worth looking at the back row, both for Henderson and Byrne. And if we were to play him a less, not not together, but, um, you know, to me, for, for all his bravery and heroics, um, and he's hugely admirable, CJ Stander is the epitome of the problem with the current stagnation in our play. He's he's gone he is an incredibly heroic rugby player who will run into brick walls again and again and do what's asked of him. But he looks to me like a guy who <clears throat> if there was a more space, if there was more freedom to roam on the field, he'd still probably run in to a brick wall and make a make a good meter or two. And that's just the nature of his game. He's more of a grunt type player. But, you know, you look at the likes of O'Brien, who looked ineffectual. If he had a bit of a bit of time, freedom to roam, you talk about back rowers being tearaways and breakaways is the mm. former terminology. They've no freedom to roam because there's no space, because we don't use the width of the field, we don't offload. Um, so, yeah, if you had Byrne or Henderson involved in that kind of setting or a Jack Conan, you know, you're talking about a different type of play. But But currently... 
Um, you know, I've rambled off a bit from Tygburn, but I suppose my point is that in in a different setting, I think he could be hugely effective. But under the current uh, regime, he's not going to start as a second row and it's unlikely he'll fit in as a back row. But he's arguably one of our most talented players sitting on mm. the bench. So. It's a strange one. But you're, well, you're using players who will suit the style that Joe wants to play and they're more company men. They're, they're the accountants, not the artists. They're the guys yeah. who do exactly what he wants and keep implementing it. Yeah, and listen, that can be brilliant. CJ Sander was brilliant against France and has been on many other occasions. He occasions. has, he has. And, and I hope that doesn't sound unfair. I'm saying he's, he just, to me, it's, he kind of symbolises that current problem in our game of making a yard or two, but that's not quite enough at the moment. Mm. Yeah, good to see other guys. Even Jack Cohn put his hand up, in fairness, in that number eight yeah. position, and Quinn Rue did well on to land. Dave Kilcoyne, so that probably has been a, a good development. I guess just to wrap up on Ireland, with another question, Jack Cohen Doyle on Instagram asks, is what happened in the Six Nations relevant to the World Cup, or are they totally separate entities? Do you still feel that we can go forward to the, Ireland can go forward to the World Cup in a good place? Oh, I, I, I think confidence is going to be shook right down to the core and there's going to be a bit of soul searching. Um, if we were to tweak three to four aspects of our play, I, I think it could, be an, it could be a great thing that we had a shocker or two shocker performances in the Six Nations. It took, if we did an outstanding Six Nations and nobody had worked out how to stop that type of play and it happened to us two weeks into Japan, it would be a far bigger car crash, you know. So, um, if we if we go away and and take and if we go away and learn and adapt and add in a bit more creativity into our game and a bit of freedom to for players to to express themselves more, um, maybe concentrate a bit more on skill levels and ability to offload and things like that. Encourage risk, um, you know, taking risks. Um, I think it could be a a seminal moment for the squad. They're only getting one chance. It's, it's arguably our greatest ever squad of players, arguably our greatest ever coach. And we're only getting one chance to go to Japan. And if we don't learn from the Six Nations and change something, if we go, if we if we take the next four months to to do what we did badly slightly better, yeah, then, then uh, it's a huge problem. But I do think, to answer the listener's question, the Six Nations is a direct link and feed into the World Cup and we've got to react to it. Well, I had an interesting couple of days over in Paris. I was at the World Rugby Player Welfare and Law Symposium. It's kind of first of its kind event. Um, generally, law tweaks in rugby have been designed just for the spectacle side of things probably not considering the, the player welfare as part of it. This meeting of some of the great rugby minds actually kind of flipped it on its head. So you consider law changes purely based on player welfare. Really interesting stuff. There were guys like Ian Foster from the All Blacks, Jacques Nienabert from South Africa, Thierry Dusatoire, Jean de Villiers, Conrad Smith, really intelligent rugby, rugby brains there, as well as all the union medical staff. And even hearing the data on the rugby side of things is interesting. It seems to have kind of leveled off now in terms of incidents. Um, and certainly the concussion data from recent times is looking a bit more encouraging. However, the severity of the injuries is rising. And that kind of led to really interesting d- debate about how the game has changed. And essentially it all comes down to that line speed, doesn't it? The defensive side of the, the landscape rugby has changed. Everyone's got line speed. You n- normally got 14, maybe 13 defenders in the front line coming forward at pace. And it's quite hard when you're moving at pace to actually have good technique. 
and a, a slight change from the attacker can put you in a really bad position. And we're seeing 76% of concussions coming in the tackle and over 70% of those times it's the tackler himself who's getting concussed. Um, so that was the kind of basis for a lot of suggestions for law tweaks. One of the really interesting ones, and this has been talked about a lot in, in rugby in, in recent years, I want to ask you about, is the 50-22 law trial. So this could potentially come in after the World Cup. It will need to go through the law review group w- with World Rugby. But essentially, you kick the ball out of hand from your own half in play, it bounces and it goes into touch in the opposition 22 and you get the attacking line out. So the idea is to make sure the opposition have to put defenders in the backfield and hopefully yeah. open up space in the front line. What would be your impression to that suggestion? Uh, I think it's a magic idea. It's, yeah. it's um it's pretty radical and um but it would it would it would encourage um you know Jesus it would encourage Raj to come out of retirement. Yeah. <laughs> he was start. the first guy I thought of, honestly. <laughs> but um but that's a part, that's a skill. We talked about it a while back, tongue in cheek, talking about bringing back the spiral kick and bringing yeah. back the uh Kicking tactically is a part. It's 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 the same as we've got to maintain the scrum as a contest. We've got to ma- you know maintain the set piece. Otherwise, rugby, which has evo- has I don't know whether you'd say evolved or regressed towards mm. towards breakdown rugby like rugby league, um, but with fifteen players on in the same dimensions, it's very very different to thirteen players. So that can at times make rugby look so ugly and attritional and what can be a beautiful game. But if you add in a huge incentive and a reward to kick accurately over long distances and get possession back, it's a phenomenal shift in what's going on currently. And it will it will free up space in that lead defensive line because they're going to have to drop uh, defenders back. Mm. It'll make space if you want to you know, f- feign the kick or pretend you're kicking and attack midfield, you've a bit more space. If you're going to kick, you've got to be accurate because teams are going to counter-attack. And it will take the uniformity, I think it'll do a, go a long way to take the uniformity and the the kind of military-looking stance from two teams facing each other, running into each other, and, and, and at this apparent reduction in space. I think it would be an incredibly brave uh, change, and I would love to see it introduced. It would be really fascinating because players already are getting so good. We're, we've seen that as a team in the Six Nations mm. with the kick into backfield and exploiting that space when people are only having one defender back there, maybe. You also almost essentially have to have defenders on both touchlines at all of the time. And even at that, a really good kicker could probably still yeah. manufacture a bounce to, to go into touch. Yeah. I guess there there are always kind of unintended consequences. That's the phrase World Rugby use. And you're, mm. you're, they were trying to tease that out a bit. Did, what did you think? Was one, there, of the, one of the kind of hesitations, I guess, was that you would have a lot of kicking because teams would get so good at kicking it, they'd mm. find a way, even with defenders in the backfield. And then you'd have the game played a lot inside the 22 where the defence is going to be congested because there is no backfield mm. and it's all about driven malls. So there was that slight concern mm. because like rugby coaches and players are so driven to win. They don't care mm. what the game looks yeah. like a lot of the time. Yeah, There are philosophies that are different sure. and there are some coaches who are driven by I want this to be beautiful or I want my players to enjoy it. Not many, in fairness. That's it. That's yeah. it. They'll always find a way to exploit the laws and even now, like the current law, law book, a lot of people would say isn't really that strictly adhered but to. I think the the, uh, the concern that the kicking would arise to a standard that, you know, from 60 metres, you can, you can drop it on a sixpence 
bouncing it in between a fullback or a winger who's deep and get it into touch without them stopping it. I think that's too much of a stretch. Yeah. I mean, it is an incredible... It's, it's probably, to me, the hardest skill. Uh, and I, I obviously, I was a 10, but... That to me was, and I was not the best at that relative to my peers. You know, I had a running game, more of a passing game, but the likes of Raj worked tire, tirelessly at that. And uh, he's probably the greatest exponent of it in, in recent memory in the last 20, 30 years. Um, and he could run games by doing it. But he's, he's if, we, if you were to add in that rule, would everyone rise to the ability of being able to do that? I don't. I don't think so because it's it's dependent on other variables. It's dependent on the quality of ball the ten receives. It's yeah. dependent on are the back rows, are they? Is there a barrier to them running through and blocking you down? So mm. have you forwards in that way in that line? It's dependent on did it come off a line out or scrum the area the side of the field unless the kicker can kick off both feet. You know, so there's there's a lot of variables there. The conditions are very hard as well. If it's if it's uh, a slightly slippery ball or anything like that, where you have to adjust for a second when you catch, even that allows the the on running back rower to to you know, gain an extra half meter to try and block you down. You yeah, know, so yeah. um, it would. I think it would. It would suggest teams will can start to construct play in order to set up the kicker in a pocket, which happens. Which happens already, but anyway. yeah, in, in but, a different way. It'll be fascinating to see, and I think we'll. I'm pretty certain we'll see a trial after the the, the World Cup. The next cycle begins yeah. in tw- early 2020. There was loads of other stuff. I mean, the the high tackle was a, a big focus. They're, I think they're going to bring forward the high tackle warning system. I don't know if you saw that it was part of the World Under 20 Rugby Championship. Essentially, siding commissioners after the game would go through it and find tackles where the tackler was upright. Uh, the definition was that he wasn't bent at the waist. And he would get a, a warning, basically one strike. Uh, you get two strikes over the course of the championship and you miss one miss one game. So um, they had 11 warnings in total over the course of the championship. And they saw, it's a very small sample size, but they saw a 50% reduction in concussion because defenders were aware, okay, I got to get low into this tackle or else I could potentially miss a game in, in a short tournament. So that was encouraging. I think they're looking for a, a, a kind of elite level senior competition to trial that. But that whole high tackle area was was a really big focus we're going to see i think next week a new framework for the referees to use mm. because the sense is that still even with all the chat about it, there's not enough red and yellow cards in that area and mm. um, so we'll see something i guess to, to clarify for the referees and give them a quicker checklist that he does this 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 and this um there was other stuff around possibly substitutions changing the number that you're allowed so hopefully a bit more fatigue on the pitch late in the game the offside line maybe bringing mm. that back a little bit so well, maybe you don't have that lateral space, you have a bit more time on the ball before you meet that line speed. Um, uh, and even numbers in rocks, maybe trying to tie up a few bodies into that area. Mm. Loads of little different ideas. We're going to see some trials, I think, after after Rugby World Cup. We do have a question about a tackling, I guess. Uh, ben on Twitter asks, why aren't refs punishing Owen Farrell's bad tackle technique? Should have, should have been 10 minutes at least for the tackle uh, against Scotland. No arms in late, yellow definitely. The angle behind the goal showed he wasn't looking at the ball at all. It, it has been a bit of a surprise. He's had three high-profile yeah, examples. It's a joke. It's like I, they should be hunting him down at this stage. I don't know what it is. Yeah. They're, they're so unequivocally high and without an arm wrap. And it happened in the South African game in November. The guy should have spent way less time on the field between November and, and the Six Nations. And how he is getting away with it, 
I can't actually fathom, but like McCaw made a career getting getting away with cheating <laughs> at the Rook and people didn't penalise yeah. him. So I don't know whether there's, he's a referee, he intimidates a referee. I don't know how or why. I can't in any way clinically reason how he stayed on the field for those. And they're repetitive infringements. He's done it regularly. They all are very, very similar. I know um, O'Driscoll kind of spoke at length about that initial contact being so strong that the player falls back and mm. you can't wrap the arm. But to me, that's exactly why they've brought it in. The initial contact is so strong because he doesn't have his arm wrapped. Yeah. So of course, you know, say, well, if that impact is high and then the guy rebounds so far away from you that you can't wrap your arm around him, that's Owen Farrell's fault. That's not the laws or, you know, okay, I'm, I happen to be so strong that people rebound off me. That's not the case. If you go in with the correct technique under the laws, you won't rebound people away from you. You only do that by dipping your shoulder and smashing into someone arms free mm. to rebound them. Yeah. There's an element of soakage in a tackle. There's no element of soakage when you shoulder charge someone. Yeah. So to say I tried to wrap my arms after I ran into him at full pace with my shoulder is uh, rubbish, I would say. Yeah, I think I think I, I do think this yeah. new framework will help. Yeah. With instances like that, there's a quick checklist. Even going through it over the course of those days in Paris, you can see actually he would have been in the sin bin there, and it would have been easier for the referee. These are my three justifications. Mm. You're gone. So it'd be really interesting to see that. One of the other suggestions actually was that there be. Um, when a player gets yellow carded, the 10-minute sin bin window allows the sighting commissioner to review the incident and if he feels the referee has made an error, he can upgrade it to a red card. Which, again, is just... World Rugby are just keen for these red card incidents to stop being missed because it's such a, it's such mm. a disadvantage. And after the fact, if you get banned for four weeks, that's no advantage to the team who, mm. who missed out on that. But listen, there's going to be loads of change um, happening in rugby after World Cup, but uh, really interesting stuff. Well, for this week's interview, we caught up with former Leinster centre Brendan Mackin, who joined London Irish at the start of the season. Really interesting project going on over there under Declan Kidney and Les Kiss, so it was good to get Brendan's thoughts. You know, it's nice to get a run of games, um, which has been good. I, I, I kind of, um, you know, I kind of got that at, at times and whilst, um, you know, but, but, but it, it was nice to kind of put consecutive, um, consecutive games under my belt, um, which I've really enjoyed and... Uh, so everything's gone well, really. We're we're eight clear at the top. Unfortunately, we got beaten by Yorkshire up up there last weekend, or two weekends ago, which, which wasn't ideal for us. Um, but thankfully, Ealing got beaten by Richmond. So it's one of these leagues, kind of, you know, I think that the the top sides are if they aren't on their game, they get beaten by by the lower sides in the league. So um, it's quite a it's quite a it's quite a very physical league. It's not different to the Premiership, but uh, but no, it's enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. Before I ask any more rugby questions, you are also a podcast, I guess, uh, star. You've been working with the rugby pod lads a few times. Is that something you enjoyed? Maybe something for for life after rugby? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been loving it whenever I can get the yeah. whenever I can get the call. I'm kind of like twenty fourth man, really. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? With with with, uh, with the rugby pod guys and um, whenever Jim or or Fran, the producer, can can uh, can get me on, I'm. I always, uh, you know, lo- love love getting getting stuck into it and uh, love to be involved more. Yeah, they're a great, great crack, the lads. Um, you mentioned the the kind of run of starts there. Like, how does that benefit you as a player? What what have you noticed from actually being able to back up games consecutively? Well, it's just you just feel as each game kind of 
um, happens and, and you know you feel that bit sharper the following week and it's just it's difficult when you're kind of in for two then you're out for two and then you're back in again you can't really um, you know put a, put, put, put a run of form together and kind of fitness level wise like you know three four games under your belt like that fifth one you're you're, um, you're kind of hitting your straps it's just a lot easier and you know, I think now, nowadays like the, as the games are getting more attritional and stuff like that it's taking guys three or four games to to kind of get match fit um, so to, to show what they can do and pretty, it's pretty hard to pretty lucky and to, to be able to do that if if you are getting say two then you're out for, for two then you're back in so yeah absolutely we saw obviously Ian Keatley join you over there recently enough how's he settling in and getting on yeah he's getting on great um, he's great to have in the having the squad we've got two pretty uh, experienced now um, number 10s with himself and, and Steve Myler um, Kel Keats has been great and he's in great form looking forward to his move down to uh, down to Treviso and he's, he's added a wealth of experience um, you know and he's Keats is as you've probably known doing a bit of work with him throughout the years he's a, he's a really really good guy and he's, he's unbelievably helpful around the place yeah great guy how have you found working with Declan Kidney like would you have known him from before um, I was in the, I was in a couple of Irish camps um, mm. when he was the Irish coach, um, you know, and I think he's he's great for um, he's great for um, you know giving guys confidence and to show to show you know their their abilities and he wants guys to to be to kind of you know really express themselves, not play within themselves, and go out and play with a smile and enjoy yourself. But um, but um, you know he's 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 kind of getting the best out of guys. So to be honest, I've 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 loved working with him. Um, so far this season um, it's been really good yeah and Les Kiss would be more maybe more on the pitch is that how his role kind of works yeah he, um, so Les is doing the attack and then Dex Danaher has been doing the um, okay. really defence um, so yeah Kiss is great uh, he's, he's got a wealth of experience as well and he, they, they want to play an entertaining brand of rugby which suits me yeah definitely as you mentioned things are going pretty well in the championship eight points clear five rounds left like there obviously is some confidence that you'll get the job done and get into the premiership can you just tell us about I guess the ambition of the club there obviously Sean O'Brien's signing announced and some other big names potentially on the way how exciting a time is it in, in the club there yeah it's brilliant um, you know the the stadium um, as well the announcement of Brentford um, just to in queue there so basically you know in the heart of West London is, is, is great so um, and like you said um, to be, I can, I'm, I'd say there's a, there's a couple of more big names in their way uh, the training ground is, is second to none so you know, this club belongs in the in the in the top flight of English rugby in the top half of the top flight of English rugby um, so yeah it's definitely going in, in an upward trajectory so it's great and there's a great atmosphere around the place and uh, you know everyone's in everyone's in good form just kind of make sure you need to do the just get this job done before you can properly start thinking about uh, about next year. As I said, you know anyone can kind of beat anyone in this league if you're uh, if you're not honest. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, as the name suggests, really strong links to Ireland in the club. There, does it feel like maybe some of that identity is kind of growing back? Even with the move to, to Brentford, you might get some of the Irish in London and Sean coming to join you. Does it feel like that Irish side of the club is going to grow again? Maybe. Yeah, like even when you come into the place, it says carried me on the on a on a on a mass. There's like. You know, in the Majeski, um, there's some there's Irish up in the up in the walls and stuff like that. And you know, there's so many Irish actors knocking around, which is great. Like you know, in medical staff, S and C, um, you know, guys who work in 
uh, on the off off field stuff. There's, there's it's a great Irish community here. Um, mm. you know, I think that's what it was back in the back in the day. Almost it was a place for Irish people to come when they were when they were moving over to to the UK. So no, it's great. Yeah, brilliant stuff. It sounds like it's going great. You mentioned there wasps before, and and maybe not getting that run of games at all times. Um, how do you reflect, I guess, on the on the years there now and, and the time you had it with wasps? Yeah, no, like I've, you know, I really enjoyed it. To be honest, um, you know, I was involved in some pretty, you know, some pretty pretty big games. Um, you know, the, that big win over Leinster was nice <laughs> mm, <yeah. laughs> when, I, when I when I first moved over. That was great, and you know, with a good win over Ulster as well. Um, you know, I was. With, with, with a big win, I played in a game against uh, against um, Exeter. You know, um, sold out Rico, which was a great game as well. So, you know, I I, I, um, I really enjoyed it there. It was just it was just the only probably thing was it would have been nice just to be kind of um, you know like an out and out starter in that team. But you know, I guess if you look if you go through the the, the, the names when I was there, um, you had some some world class players who who were sitting on the bench or were not getting in and it's just that's just how competitive um how competitive it was when I was there. But um no, it was good. And the, the thing about Wasp we'll we'll always remember is is the great group of lads there. Um I think it's kind of you know, I've been very lucky everywhere I've gone. Mm. Really the lads have been great. I, starting off in Lancaster, you know, I still talk, talk to you know, go few those guys um, quite a bit and um, you know, I'm really lucky that I've kind of met some great lads along the way. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned there yourself that you'd been in a couple of Ireland squads and obviously that's the ambition for any Irish player having played representative, particularly through the age grades and whatever. Did you ever think, uh, oh, I need to come back? Or uh, Well, I'm EQP now, Murray, so I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm going for the Red Rose. You're, no, no, you're converted. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I'm that would have gone down badly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only, I'm only joking. Uh, well, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, would be it would be unbelievable to play for Ireland and you know I think you know Guffey and my you know close friends from school have, you know have been capped yeah. numerous times now and you know every time I watch Ireland play they're, like, I'd be lying to tell, if I didn't say you know there's a bit of me which would which would love to be which would love to be out there playing for them and um, you never know when the time is right hopefully I'll uh, you know get back and be able to um, you know stake a claim mm, Absolutely just short term I guess it's getting the job done and, and like seal that promotion as soon as possible, I guess, for London Irish. Yeah, absolutely. So we got um, Doncaster at our place this weekend, and then we, we got to go down to Penzance uh, down in Cornwall, which is um, which is a tough old, tough, yeah. tough, tough place to go. I went there. Um, I went there with Leinster A. I think I was nineteen. Um, we played against them in the British and Irish Cup game. I think it was, and um, right before our Christmas party, and I think we were something like 35, 40 points down um, at half time. So I'm. I'm well aware of the challenge that's going to that's going to face us down there. I think I think they love getting um, uh, big teams and they're on their own patch and they try to look for a scalp. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hope everything goes really well over the the next couple of weeks. But thank you, English qualified Brendan Macken. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Catch you soon. Well, a tough Six Nations for the senior men's team, but incredible stuff for the Ireland under twenties, Andy wrapping up that Grand Slam over in Wales um, in a really impressive overall tournament performance, really cohesive team effort, which you don't sometimes get with the 20s. Uh, they really came together really well under, under Nolan McNamara. One of the things I want to ask you about was the Munster influence. They had 12 players in the overall squad and some of the standout players in the team were from Munster. We've had loads of questions over the last couple of months about, oh, the Munster production line is dead, what's going on? I mean, this must be so encouraging for the province to see their their influence on this. 
the Grand Slam. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, Van Graan, Flannery, Felix Jones are, are probably three, arguably three of the happiest uh, provincial coaches coming out of the Six Nations cycle just based on, on the uh, contribution made by those lads from the Munster Academy. Um, but the team as a whole played. Fiona Steed uh, spoke um, about the kind of reckless abandon nearly that they play with, yeah. which is a joy to watch. And perhaps you can say, yeah, it's under 20s and there's less at stake. Um, but they play with a, a skill level and a creativity that is joyful to watch. And that served them through the entire tournament and the standard of performance they delivered. Um, there was, they certainly looked like they enjoyed it. But I think the school's system, both Leinster and Munster in particular, um, and maybe, maybe Ulster and Connacht to a lesser extent, but the school system, which is a knockout cup tournament for, you know, in all four provinces, needs to be lauded because the, the quality of play on show, the amount of running rugby, the amount of positive rugby as opposed to negative rugby that happens in a knockout tournament with high stakes, um, is preparing these guys for prof- young professional careers. Um, you know, and, and to watch a, a high level schools cup game, there's an element of at times you're like, this is like how the All Blacks play. Mm. And it's so good to watch. It's so refreshing. And they're then because they're doing it under under severe, what is very intense pressure in knockout games, they're able to translate that into uh, representative level for their provinces. And then they're even more impressive. They translate that into a Six Nations. And it's hugely uh, impressive, hugely encouraging for the future to see that. Um, and it would be nice in time if it translates into uh a more senior level that that uh, that willingness to play in a more creative way yeah yeah it's a massive part I, I remember tweeting after the the French game I think like you're kind of depriving yourself if you're not watching the under 20 yeah. rugby it's a massive thing for loads of rugby fans now often the most enjoyable part of the weekend is is tuning in and seeing that yeah as you as you termed it that kind of reckless abandon side of things they do go forward now to the, the world rugby under 20 championship in Argentina in June they're in pool B with England Australia and Italy one of the really impressive things about this group is their mindset. Like they expected to win that Six Nations, and they'll go forward to that competition with yeah. really strong ambitions. Is that, is that been a bit of a shift? You think in Irish rugby that those younger players now are yeah. almost expecting it? Yeah, I suppose. And they look at recent history and the the likes of James Ryan and and people who were among their peer group who've you know won European cups and beaten the All Blacks and. You know, I played under 20s for two years, but it was at a time in Irish rugby where the, um, you know, where probably we celebrated, the greatest celebrations we ever had were winning a triple crown. So there was a different expectation, the, the, you know, at senior level. Mm. You looked at, at, at a side that had come out of the, the doldrums, really, of the 90s. We did do brilliant things and make brilliant decisions at at. IRFU strategic level to, to centralise contracts and suddenly rugby started to turn around. But, you know, at under 20s, 21s level, that takes a generation or two to translate through. So I think there's an air of expectation in these guys that we can beat anyone in the world, we can be successful, um, which is amazing because I, I don't think, I'm speaking for myself, I don't, you know, I went to a World Cup in Argentina in 99 I certainly didn't go there with the mindset we were ever going to win or mm. even within, 
you know, a notion of, of winning the thing. But it was great to be there. That was the attitude I had. There was probably other guys on the trip. Uh, Leo Cullen or Paul O'Connell, yeah. these probably thought a bit more, <laughs> they were a bit more belligerent than myself. But but, uh, but I do think um, it's a shift, yeah, in, in terms of the mentality. It's brilliant, like, yeah. it's amazing. to Like you said, crack open a beer on a Friday night and watch the under-20s, you, you won't get better entertainment. Yeah, and that mindset is, is across, across the group. Mm. I guess in contrast, Ireland women, you worried that the mindset isn't expecting victory at all, at all very often now. Um, they finish off the poor Six Nations with a defeat over in Wales. And I guess they've, first time of asking they failed on their stated aim of being in the top three every season that was one of the new parts of the, the action plan under IRFU you also look at England closing out their Grand Slam with a, an 80-0 win over Scotland mm. just a remarkable result in a Six Nations game but probably points to how quickly that gap is going to open up now with a professional England and the rest trying to catch up it looks like rather than a long-term plan the IRFU probably need to be quite drastic with what they're going to do to keep pace yeah I I, I don't I'm not sure what the there's simple answers, but I know there's a lot of discord. Um, there's obviously they had a great cycle and and an, a, an aging squad and a lot of kind of high profile retirements in the last three or four years. But there's there's an underlying discord in terms of resources, uh, t- training time together, squad time together. Um, the it's it's been a fairly spectacular fall in the last two to three years, relative to a team that was so successful four years ago. I I'm not sure. I you know I mean I, the IRFU is not without money. Yeah. So if money is the problem, throw money at it because um, there's no there's no shortage shortage of enthusiasm. The playing base is increasing on a club by club basis. There's mm-hmm. two to three teams that are kind of really they self-manage at club level and they almost self-manage through to provincial level and uh, the enthusiasm is there the the people are there the willingness is there if money is the issue they ought to throw money at the problem but they may be looking at it as a business model are they getting any return on investment in terms of gate receipts and things I don't know well that's where they need to be creative Um, yeah I've been having a few chats with people recently involved in the club game in Ireland and the AAL, the frustration is there are maybe three or four strong teams and after that the, the competition mm. level dips away quite drastically. They need to be creative with, I guess, leading the way in, in creating a revenue uh, system, whether that's a new competition, whether that's, mm. I don't know, going abroad and, and linking with clubs that way and, and creating mm. something new that's exciting for potential fans and mm. is going to create greater media interest as well. I think they do need to be creative with it now. Um, because as you say, there's there's no revenue source there now. They're they're essentially spending, yeah. um, they, and also they're looking at the sevens quite strongly, um, and that's going to eight events next season. So there's not yeah. just going to be six legs. There's going to be eight, and that is a further resource drag as well. So it, it is really concerning. There was there was wasn't there fifty two thousand at a game in Crow Park uh, this year for for um, I think it was the All Ireland semi final or the ladies All Ireland semi. Yeah, yeah. But like, there's no shortage of appetite. For, for women's sport to be recognised and supported at a high level. I think it's the same. The number's probably not the same maybe in rugby as they are in, in football and camogie, but there's definitely appetite there. I, you know, playing either side of a, a big European game in Aviva, some, you know, like you said, being creative, generating momentum that way, generating exposure, um, maybe takes that 
conundrum away from the IRFU in terms of if we invest a lot, where do we get a return if there's low attendance levels and or if the team are underperforming. But I think they have the coffers to throw a lot more money at it than they're currently doing. And, uh, and that always works. <laughs> Look at England. Well, before we finish up, just a reminder that the provinces are back in Pro 14 action this weekend. Connacht are taking on Benetton, a big game in Galway on Friday night. Edinburgh are hosting Leinster in Murrayfield on Friday night. Ulster versus the Kings in Belfast on Saturday evening and Munster versus Zebra at Tone Park on Saturday night. There's always a bit of a come down after the Six Nations, Andy, but we're really into important games for the provinces very soon. These Pro 14 fixtures are, are going to be uh, making the difference for some provinces at the end of the season. And then you've got your European quarterfinals with, with all of them involved as well it is a it is a big shift for players but do you feel it's it's well timed even for a lot of those Ireland internationals to get back into that straight away yeah I think a lot of them will be so I suppose tired and and of the post-mortem and the the horrible feeling that you get after a bad run or bad performances to go into a fresher different entirely different environment in your home club does give you a bit of a spring to your step and um I think the management are going to look at it in, in, in multiple ways. They're going to look on it as a way to get maybe a guy who had a bad game or a bad run in the internationals a rest, maybe time to get him back into some form. They're going to look at the Pro 14 as an entity itself and where they are in the league table. That's important. And obviously the run into Europe and combinations that they might be using the following week in Europe. So it's 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 there's it's kind of a hot potato for provincial management this week in particular in terms of their selection policy because they've all those variables going on and they need a win and a performance. So I don't envy the coaches but I think it's a nice position to be in as a player going in who doesn't have to think of all those issues. You either get a rest or you get a chance to put things right and both of those will probably work. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get stuck into the provinces next week. It's all we have time for, unfortunately, today. Thanks, everyone, for the great questions. And thanks, Andy. Cheers, Marie. We'll chat to you next week. Thanks, everyone.